Open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let's pray. Father, to you be all glory this morning at the pronouncement of your word, and we ask that, Holy Spirit, you would work it in our hearts, Lord, in such a way that it would prompt not only a heart of worship of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, but a heart of obedience to your call upon our lives. Please bless this time of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <laughs> we, of course, know that the Christmas season is a special time of year. Um, it's special because I think, you know, even the, even the world looks at it uh, as being special. They look at it because of its beauty, you know, with all the lights and the snow and the decorations that go with it. And uh, there's just a, a joyful, happy spirit regarding the Christmas season. Even from a secular standpoint, even the songs that you hear playing in the mall, there's just something joyful about it, and I think that's why so many people love this time of year, whether they're believers or not. Um, but as God's people, we know that Christmas is so much more than just the outward trappings of lights and bows and packages. Um, it's actually the, the time of year that we are forced to be reminded of the incredible doctrine of the incarnation, the, the truth that the Christian faith alone proclaims that God himself descended from his holy abode and deigned to come alongside us and become a man and live alongside us in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, for many, the whole idea of God, if they assent to their being a deity, they will usually have something in mind of, of being the, uh, the big guy in the sky, right? He's, he's you know, we, we know that God is out there, but he's really not a part of anybody's life. He's usually at quite a distance. There's even been songs put in that way, you know. God is watching from a distance. And so that's the, that's the mentality that many people hold. But through the incarnation, we are reminded of the fact that God is not afar off. God is absolutely very near to us. Amen. He's near to us, and he's accessible by us and approachable by us in the person of the Lord Jesus. 
And if you think about it, the incarnation is actually the longing of man's lost and sinful heart. Um, man's heart is perpetually unsatisfied. No matter what he pursues in his life, nothing satisfies, right? Because it's always got to be something more. And despite the arrogance that he often displays, and I'm speaking of the natural man, the man who has rejected God, deep down he knows that there is an emptiness there, that, that, and, and that, there's a, that he in and of himself is small, is very minute in comparison to the entire universe. And he knows that there must be something more to this all. But sadly, what happens to the natural man, instead of searching for God, the creator, he looks to the creation for his answers. He either looks for things in lifestyle or, or whatever that might bring along in terms of, the, of trying to live it out and live out his, his best life now, right, from a material worldly standpoint. Or he even maybe even goes beyond that and looks uh, to the universe as it's created. And, and one of the things that I was thinking about was, like, for example, is this institute in Southern California called SETI. It's the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Millions of dollars go into this nonprofit organization in California with equipment that scans the skies, perpetually looking for communication from an outside world. They're desperately looking for a communication that is outside, that is extraterrestrial, that is beyond this earth. They're hoping that by receiving communications from another word, world, that they're and that they will find in that alien life, the answers to all of their problems and to the, all of their deepest longings, right? They're looking for an answer from someone that they know is not on this earth. And so for the natural man, they're actually hoping it's an alien life. But the wonderful thing and the truth about it is that man does not have to waste millions scanning the skies for that truth to come to them. They don't need to waste that time looking for a voice from an extraterrestrial world because we already have received a message from an extraterrestrial. Mm -hmm. The one that is beyond us all. Mm -hmm. The very creator. The one who stands outside of creation itself. He is the ultimate extraterrestrial. God himself. He has communicated to us. And he's communicated to us most specifically in the incarnation of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have testimony of that from the scriptures itself. Hebrews 1 starts off in the first three verses with these words. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom all things were made. And then he makes this note. He says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He's saying that when you see Jesus, you see God. He is the exact imprint of who God is. Now, if God's spoken to us in this way, then we should do well. We would do well to consider more deeply this fantastic revelation that he's given to us, this whole idea of the incarnation. If for no other reason than to grow in our love and our worship for the Savior who has given his life for us and who condescended to walk among us, that we might know him, that we might know God. 
And so that's what we're going to attempt to do today in, in this uh, time in his word. Um, we're going to look at the doctrine of the incarnation, and we're going to try to look at it just from three perspective, uh, perspectives, and each one briefly. We're going to look at it, um, we're going to look at the reality of the incarnation, we're going to look at the reason for the incarnation, and we're going to look at our response to the incarnation. So with that, let's jump in. Let's look at the reality of the incarnation. <clears throat> All of us, I've mentioned in other uh, messages that I've given, I like to point to those characters from comics and movies that we like, those larger-than-life characters, those heroes that we like to come to our aid, right? Our Superman and our Batman. We love those characters because they, they rescue mankind in times of great danger. But as much as we enjoy reading those characters, we all recognize that none of those characters exists. There is not one. Even, even one as closely human as Jason Bourne, whom you would think could do anything. He doesn't exist. He doesn't exist in the way that's portrayed in movies and TV. Well, when it comes to the Incarnation, um, there are many skeptics that insist that the Christian Church has done this very thing to Jesus. They would say that the Christian Church has uh, put upon and imposed upon Jesus something that is not true about him. That um, they've imposed upon uh, this first century Jewish man the fictional characteristics of godlike wisdom and power for the purpose of satisfying their primal and unsophisticated need to believe in something beyond themselves. That's what atheists look at Christians like. They, they think that what we're doing here is just a crutch to help us to get through life. Because we're not sophisticated enough to understand that there really is nothing that created everything that we see that clearly shows the signs of a grand design and a designer behind it. So in light of that claim, though, of, of what these skeptics might say about Jesus, we need to ask the question, is it true? Is the Incarnation a real thing, or is, have we been duped to just believe some myth that has been passed on for over 2,000 years now? Well, if we use the principle found in Scripture that is used for the basis of truth, and that's also used in our legal system, which is come from, comes from Deuteronomy 19.15, which says, By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established, if we use that as our principle, we can rest assured that what we have pronounced about Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, is absolutely true. Because there are more than two witnesses given to us in God's Word. But we're just going to look at two today that clearly point out the fact that Jesus truly was a living, flesh-and-blood man, and that he truly was the incarnate Son of God. He was deity dwelling within flesh. So turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. 1. Starting in verse 1 of 1 John. This is the Apostle writing. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, 
and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So here in these four verses, we have firsthand, a firsthand account from the Apostle John, one of the, first, uh, the original twelve apostles, and it provides a testimony to us of the fact that Jesus was truly a living flesh and blood man. Now, we know that he's talking about Jesus here, right? He never mentions the name Jesus, but we know he's talking about Jesus here because he's talking about the word of life. And this is already written in the context of the fact that he's already produced the gospel, which he has already referred to Jesus as the word. But then notice his description about what he says about Jesus in this case. That which we have heard, that which we have seen, that's what we have touched with our hands. The life was made manifest. That means it was made, it was revealed in front of us, right in front of our physical presence. We have seen it. We testify to it. That he, that he actually saw it. He's, he's an eyewitness to this incredible proposition that Jesus is in the flesh. And then he says, and we proclaim it to you. This is the testimony from a man who literally followed Jesus for three years, right? He ate with him. He slept alongside him. He served with him. He prayed with him. He heard him teach. He watched him as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, after he woke up, of course. And he saw him die. He saw him bleeding on the cross while he held his mother in his arms when Jesus commanded him, commissioned him to take care of his mom when Jesus was gone. So, John is making the point here that Jesus is absolutely real. This is not a fiction. This is not a story that's being made up. When John wrote the, these words, he wrote it at a time when the, the very early idea of Gnosticism started to come around. Gnosticism is this higher knowledge religion. And what they were saying at the time, they were kind of they imported something from Greek theology, if you want to call it that, or Greek philosophy that basically said everything material, everything bodily was bad, and everything spiritual was good. And so the whole purpose of life was to get out of the body and enter into the spirit world because that's where nirvana was, if you will. And so they said that Jesus couldn't possibly be really in the flesh if he was God, because God would never have anything to do with flesh, because flesh was tainted, it was evil. John is writing this to debunk that whole idea. No, Jesus absolutely did come in the flesh. It was clear Jesus was a true, truly a living and breathing man. So that's John's testimony. But then it doesn't stop there. Go just a couple pages back to the book of 2 Peter. And look with me at chapter 1, starting in verse 16. This is Peter, who's also a member of the original 12. 
And starting in verse 16 of 2 Peter chapter 1, he's, he writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So notice Jesus, or excuse me, Peter debunks this idea that Jesus' incarnation is nothing but a fictional account, as many were saying at the time, even then, because he declares that he was an eyewitness to both his humanity and his deity in this account. He says that not only was he in close physical proximity to Jesus, because what's it say there? He says, we are with him on the holy mountain. This is the Mount of Transfiguration. He's with him at that moment, which affirms that Jesus is an actual person. But then he also says that he was an eyewitness of his majesty. He actually sees Jesus in his glorified body in the transfiguration. He's an eyewitness to that. And that he actually heard God the Father's testimony about his son in that moment. We ourselves heard the very voice born from heaven. So not only is he giving a testimony about himself, you remember how I said how a thing is established by two or three witnesses? He had Peter in this moment, but then he's also got the witness of the Father, who gives testimony about his own son, about who he is. And so it's from the testimony of these two first-hand accounts, all of the accounts that we have in the New Testament, and more importantly, the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds, it is by those testimonies that we know for sure, without any reservation whatsoever, that Jesus was a living, breathing, flesh and blood man that walked this earth, and he was God incarnate. So that's the reality, if you will, of the, of the incarnation. It's true. It actually is a real fact that we can declare. But then what was the reason for the incarnation? All right, What's God's purpose in all of this? Well, we could spend a lot of weeks, actually, on this question. <laughs> exactly. And that would be, you know, doing it a disservice, I think, because there's so much that can be said about all of the reasons why God deigned to take on flesh and dwell among us. But let's look at three that the scripture clearly gives us. And we're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 2 for this one. We'll start in verse 14. Hebrews 2, verse 14. <clears throat> Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered, when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. 
So let's just walk briefly through this small passage and look at the reasons for the incarnation. The very first reason that we see in this passage is that Jesus came to destroy the devil. He writes, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, speaking of Jesus, himself likewise partook of the same things, he became flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. You know, one of the consequences of the fall in the garden was that Satan became the de facto god of this world. He's even called that in 2 Corinthians. He's called the God of this world. And Paul even mentions it in, again in, in Ephesians 2, where he says he is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now working in the, in the sons of disobedience. So we know that he is clearly at work. And in that role, the devil was not only given the freedom to wreak havoc, to make hell on earth, as we say, he gave him the power of death. Satan himself has the power to destroy, to destroy lives. Now it's true, God is fully sovereign over the, the conception of our lives, the birth of our lives, and our death. He's sovereign over everyone. He knows every aspect of it. He ordains every one of those moments. But within this reality that we live in, God has, for his purposes, ordained the fact that Satan has the power to kill and destroy. And we know this even by this small example. Remember when Satan comes to God and tries to make the deal in order to take a, a swipe at Job, to take him out, if you will. God told Satan, all right, you can have your way with him, but you can't kill him. That clearly implies that Satan could kill him had God given him that open door. But he told him, no, you can't kill him. But one of the reasons for Jesus' incarnation then was to destroy Satan and his ways. And we see this in 1 John 3, verse 8. It says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And the way that Jesus did that, he did it by victory on the cross. Colossians 2.15, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them by the cross. Those rulers and authorities that he's talking about are, are the, the, the ungodly satanic realm that is working behind the scenes of all of the chaos that we see in this fallen world. But the scriptures declare that Jesus' victory came at the cross over them. So yes, Satan is clearly still at work destroying lives. We see that every day. And he's wreaking havoc. He's been doing it before Good Friday, and he's been doing it ever since Good Friday. But remember, Satan is a dead man walking. Luther even says it in his great hymn. He says, his doom is sure. And that is a great, great confidence and encouragement. He's a foe that's been dealt a mortal blow, and that was made only possible by the incarnation of our Lord Jesus. So that's the first reason for the Lord becoming a man. But what's the second reason? Well, this passage t teaches us that the second reason for Jesus' incarnation is to deliver us from the fear of death. But he says there in the second half of verse 15, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. I 
uh, arguable, I put out uh, this statement, and it's arguable, but I think it's real. I think the greatest fear of mankind is the fear of death. He may deal with it in a um, kind of a, a fun way or with humor. You know, you hear uh, a lot of times uh, quoted around uh, the old Woody Allen quote, I don't fear death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. And people hear that and they laugh and they chuckle because it's kind of an uncomfortable thing to talk about death, so the best way to deal with it is to just make fun of it. But I think in the quietness of his heart, every fallen man and woman is shaking in their boots. And the reason is because they know they're guilty. They know there's a holy God that is going to judge, and they're guilty before that God. And in and of themselves, they have no solution. They have no way that they're going to be able to appease this holy God. Even Hebrews 9 reminds us of that. It is appointed once man to die, and after that, the judgment. That's written on all of our hearts. We know it. We push it off. We don't want to deal with it. Most people, you try to talk to them about death, it's the last thing they want to talk about because they don't want to face this reality. But judgment is coming. But it's by the cross and the resurrection that Jesus destroys the fear of death for everyone who believes. Listen to these great words. We've heard these. We hear this often at, at Easter. But these are the, the most amazing words from Scripture for mankind to hear. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 through 57. It's in the incarnation that we are absolutely freed from the fear of death. And then the third reason that the passage tells us that uh, the Lord came as a man, and I think most importantly for all of us, to make atonement for our sins. Look at Hebrews 2, verses 16 and 17. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus' mission was not to save angels. It's clearly declared for us right here. He came to save who? The offspring of Abraham. He came to save flesh and blood. And to do this in a way that was totally, totally legitimate, and that satisfied perfect justice and fulfilled all righteousness, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way. Verse 17 tells us that. He had to be made like them, human in every way. Again, another uh, uh, proof text of the incarnation of our Lord Jesus. And so by becoming incarnate, by becoming a real man, and serving as our high priest, which is the representative of humanity before God, he could faithfully and genuinely make atonement for our sins. The sin of mankind was a debt that had to be paid to satisfy God's justice. Either we were going to pay it eternally in hell, or someone, a fellow human being with the means to do it, 
would have to pay for it on our behalf. That's actually something that we, that's a, that's a transaction that all of us can understand, even within our economy. I'll give you an example. Last week, I was at Goodyear, and I had something done to my car, and I happened to see a friend of mine in there that I hadn't seen in years. I can't even remember the last time I saw him, more than 20 years. And, um, and he and I struck up a great conversation, a nice little reunion, and he was checking out. And at the moment that he was checking out, he put his card through, and it rejected it. And so, you know, he's going through the moment with the guy at the counter and, and they're trying to work it out. Well, why don't you swipe it again? Maybe he didn't read it or whatever, but it kept coming up that it was a rejected card. And he asked me, he says, do you, do you have anything else? He goes, I've got nothing else on me, my friend says. And, I, and I'm kind of watching this from the corner. And, and of course, you know, it's awkward. It's a little embarrassing. He's obviously embarrassed. This is happening in front of people, somebody he knows. His card is rejected and so forth. And to my shame, I actually sat there and resisted this thought for the longest time. But I finally get up and I said, if I pay for it, will you accept it? And the guy behind the counter said, of course. And, and I said, I said, Donnie, I says, you can get me, you can get back to me whenever, whenever, whenever you can. And I says, don't worry about it. I will take care of it. And he swiped it and the transaction was taken care of. And Don went on his merry way. He was grateful. And I felt good because I felt like I did a good deed. The point of that story, though, is that Don couldn't pay that payment. I had the means to do it at that moment, and the merchant accepted my payment on Don's behalf. There is no analogy like that where anybody else can do that when it comes to our sin debt, except for Jesus' life and the shed blood that he gave on our behalf to pay for us. That's exactly what he did. I stood up at that counter before God and my credit card went bust. And Jesus walks in and says, I will pay for that young man. I'll pay for that young woman. That is the gospel, people. That's why we do this every week. Because it's the greatest message this world has to hear. That each one of us has to hear. Praise be to God. By way of his incarnation, Jesus became that fellow human being that gave his life for us on the cross. And it confirmed satisfaction of our sin debt when he declared from the cross, it is finished. It's paid in full. You owe no more. So those are the three reasons at least given to us in this little portion of scripture why Jesus came. And let's just look at, in, in, our, in our final few minutes together what is our response to this incredible news? How should we respond to this? Well, first and foremost, the major response of it all is that we need to, we need to respond in faith. We need to believe what has just been declared about Jesus, about his deity, about his humanity, and about what he's done for us. That's God's call to us, to believe that truth. But even beyond that, making the assumption that most in this room have come to that place. He's given us more directive on how we can respond. And the neat thing is, as I was doing my study, um, he's given us instruction that came from each member of the Trinity. So the first response, response number one, comes to us from the Father. And it comes in uh, Matthew 17. Going back to the, uh, to the uh, moment of the Mount of Transfiguration, 
The Lord is transfigured before the apostles, Peter, James, and John. And of course, Peter, in his exuberance, he doesn't know what to do, so he starts talking about, let's stay here forever, I'm going to build you some booths, Lord, wouldn't this be great? Let's just have this commune, just us, here forever. And the scripture tells us in verse 5 of chapter 17, he, Peter, was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Our first response to the Incarnation is to listen to the Lord Jesus. You know, this world is filled with a lot of voices. This world is filled with family voices, and advertising voices, and political voices, and music voices. And unfortunately, a lot of those voices, a majority of those voices, are leading us and whoever is following them onto a road that leads to destruction. They're nothing but self-serving voices. But there's one voice above all that we should be continually listening for, and that's the voice of our Savior, because we know that our Savior, the Lord Jesus, is the true Good Shepherd. He is the shepherd that leads us into green pastures. He's the one who leads us by the quiet waters. He's the one that restores our soul, and that he's the one that will actually walk through us, with us, through the valley of the shadow of death. He's the one that can be always be counted on. And notice what he says at that one point in Matthew. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. How do we learn from people? We listen to them. We listen carefully to what they have to say. And Peter made it clear that there are no options or alternatives to this. Because he even told Jesus, when Jesus asked him, do you, want, do you too want to go away, Peter, like the rest of these people? He said, Lord, to whom else are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Why would we want to go to anyone else? If we're a sheep, we are to listen for his voice. And we're not listening for an audible voice, though. Don't be thinking that it's this still, small voice that you're going to hear whispering in your ear. God has given us clear access to his spoken word through this word that we teach from every week. And so the way that we hear God's voice speaking to us is to spend intentional and attentive time in his word. So from the Father, he says, listen to Jesus. The second response comes from the Son himself. In Matthew 4, he sees Peter and Andrew doing their fishing. And he says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And what does it say that they did? It said they left their nets and followed him immediately, as Mark puts it, immediately. To truly be a Christian requires actually cutting the cord, leaving behind worldly pursuits that define us and the worldly idols and, of entertainment and, uh, and that, that basically enslave us. We need to leave those things behind and instead intentionally live our lives full-time, not just a part-time side gig, but on a full-time commitment following after our Lord Jesus. And you know what? It's not, it's a commit, it, this is not for the faint of heart, and it's not a spiritual add-on to our life. We don't just add Jesus on to our already busy lives of everything else that we want to be doing. It's a command 
to what? Deny ourselves, to take up our crosses, whatever those may be, and to live a life of costly obedience. That means it costs us something to follow Jesus. It means being ridiculed because you're standing out from everybody else who doesn't believe. It means taking those arrows and being able to say, I stand alone because I love the Lord Jesus and I don't care what anybody else says. And it's a life that's focused not on building our own kingdoms, but on being a part, a worker, within the builder of the kingdom of God. But then the third response that we have of not only listening to Jesus and following after Jesus, but the third response to the incarnation is that we are called to imitate Jesus. And we get this from Ephesians 4, starting in verse 32. Just listen to this small snippet. He says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. The Incarnation is an amazing doctrine. But if it's only head knowledge, it doesn't do any of us any good. There's a lot of people that have know a lot of things about the Christian life from a head standpoint. But if it doesn't prompt a tangible change within a life, then it's really not working. It's not genuine. These truths need to change us. John writes in 1 John chapter 2, he says, Whoever says he abides in him, speaking of Jesus, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So if we claim to be a follower of Jesus, and if we are going to be serious about following after his lead, then we're need to, we need to be intentional copiers of his life. We're to be, as the Holy Spirit prompted Paul to write here, we're to be imitators of God. Now, we can't tell the winds to stop, and we can't call people to rise from the dead, and we can't touch people and heal them. Jesus did all those things, right? Mm -hmm. So clearly it's not those things he's calling us to imitate. Those are, those are things that only God himself can do. But he showed us how to live. And, and the New Testament is replete with so much instruction on what our lives are to look like, one to another and one as, as a godly people interacting with an ungodly world. But just look at this little snippet that I've just read, and we'll go through it very briefly. But look at the standard that he has called us to, and is this, are these characteristics of our own lives? First, he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Kindness, that seems to be a thing that's lost in our day these days. There's such an unkind attitude. If you have your phone on for any period of time, you see people so quickly tearing others down that they either disagree with or that they just want to lambaste because they're just not part of our group. Hugely unkind world. And yet, here Paul calls us, the Holy Spirit working through him, to kindness. 
That means not being harsh or bitter, but a pleasantness about us, a pleasant nature about us. And then tenderheartedness, talking of, of compassion, to be compassionate for those that are in need. Clearly, Jesus demonstrated this, right? When he comes to the multitudes that are on the hillside waiting for him as he comes off the boat, he looks at them and the scripture says that he is filled with compassion for them because they were sheep without a shepherd. He saw there absolutely, they were just scattered. And he had deep compassion for them. Or I think even in his kindness and how he dealt with the woman with the issue of blood. Here she was this outcast, fearful of even being found out. And when the whole crowd turns and sees her cowering because she's found out as having been having touched Jesus and, and zapping power from him, if you will, does he rebuke her? No. He kindly lifts her and encourages her and restores her to life. That's the kindness that should be exuded from each of our lives. And then, and Dustin pointed this out last week and as he uh, taught us on the Lord's Prayer, our lives should be characterized by forgiveness. I mean, we, of all people, have been forgiven so deeply by this incarnate word, by this Jesus who came and gave his life for us. He forgave every one of our sins, past, present, and future. How could we, if we are offended, hold that against anyone? His call to us is forgiveness. One, for our own sake, because when you hold grudges, when you hold contempt against people and refuse to forgive, that's a poison that destroys our own lives. Jesus frees us from that because we've been forgiven. We've now been empowered to forgive others in the same way. And that should be the model of our lives. One of the, 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 the one line that I constantly uh, uh, repeated in my home as the girls were growing up was, love covers a multitude of sins. And that's so operational for our lives. How much more functional for lack of a better word, how much more loving would our lives be if that would be the, the daily practice of our lives? When those slights that we take personally and want to hold as, 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 as fuel to, you know, go against somebody that we think has offended us. What if we, because of what Jesus has done for us, began to allow his love to cover those sins as well? It's transformational. And, I, and I'm preaching to myself more than I am to you, because as I read this, I'm convicted of the own, of my own way that I hold uh, these kind of things internally that are ungodly in their manifestation. And then he goes on, it says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That word there, love, is of course agape, and we, we translate that, of course, we understand that to be unconditional love. But if you think about what the Agape Feast was, the Agape Feast was a gathering of people from every economic strata, the very rich and the very poor. They were to come together and to uh, enjoy their meal of worship as a family before the Lord without any pretense, without any looking at each other in any type of a, um, a hierarchical, hierarchical fashion. They were to come together as one. And, and so even in that, there's this whole idea of welcoming, of including of, of bringing down, breaking down walls that separate us. Because at the cross, we are all leveled on the same plane. We all are those who have received the grace and the mercy of our Lord Jesus. And then lastly, it says, 
who gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Our lives are to be sacrificial. And that works itself out in a lot of different ways. But it is a life, when you think of sacrifice, it's a life of self-denial. It's a life of not pursuing what I want, but what is needful for the one that I love, for the one who is in need. And additionally to this, you have this whole idea as a frequent offering and sacrifice to God. That word sacrifice actually can be translated victim. We don't like to think of that, of, of allowing ourselves to be victims in a sense. But that's actually what Jesus does, doesn't he, when he goes to the cross on our behalf. He is the ultimate victim. He is the one who has been treated most unjustly of anyone in the entire universe and in the entire history of the world. Let's end by going to uh, a passage in 1 Peter chapter 2. And in the context of this whole idea, because we will, all, we will all, in some manner, experience being a victim. We will all, in some manner, experience being dealt with unjustly. And yet, the Lord gives us full instruction on what our response should be as his people. Starting in verse 18, the context he's talking to servants here. But you'll see how it applies to all of us. He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit, it, credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Did you ever think of that? When you're suffering for doing good, that that's a gracious thing in the sight of God? And then verse 21, he says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's the point of all this. It's in our suffering that we entrust ourselves to him who has us. To the one again that Dustin sang, let us lead us in song about this morning. The one who is on the throne, the one who is totally in charge. That's who we entrust ourselves to in those moments of suffering. And then verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. <clears throat> the incarnation is an incredible truth. It's something that I hope that we ponder more as we're preparing for this season of Christmas. And I just end with this one last passage, which again points to the incarnation of our Lord. It comes out of Luke, and it's talking about Jesus as he's growing up. It says that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. And so my prayer is that we would grow in the same way as we listen to our Lord, 
as we commit and are following after our Lord, and as we submit ourselves to the work of the Spirit in our lives, that we increasingly look more like our Lord to this fallen world. Father, we praise you for the truth of your word and Lord Jesus that you gave, Lord, up all of your glory in heaven to walk this sin-filled, treacherous land. And yet, Lord, you did it for a purpose, to redeem a people for yourself. And uh, by your grace, we rejoice in that truth because many of us here are in that company, Lord. And for those who aren't, Holy Spirit, we ask, please bring new life where there is currently not life. And we might all enter into the body of Christ. And Lord Jesus, we look forward to your return. And until then, help us to be ever faithful, to be listening for your voice, Lord, to follow hard after you, Lord, in obedience, and to imitate, Lord, your life before a dying world that they too might be drawn to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. How are we going to end this, guys? We can't be heavily. We're going to pray and go right into uh, communion, or do you want?